Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 3 The Antiquity of Civilization Part 3 I will confine myself to repeating that the earliest Egyptian communities had a common understanding about the images that stood for their individual states, and that this amount of communication is prehistoric in the sense that it is already there at the beginning of history. But as history unfolds itself, this question of communication is clearly the main question of these riverside communities. With the need of communication comes the need of a common government, and the growing greatness and spreading shadow of the king. The other binding force besides the king, and perhaps older than the king, is the priesthood, and the priesthood has presumably even more to do with these ritual symbols and signals by which men can communicate. And here in Egypt arose probably the primary and certainly the typical invention to which we owe all history, and the whole difference between the historic and the prehistoric, the archetypal script, the art of writing. The popular pictures of these primeval empires are not half so popular as they might be. There is shed over them the shadow of an exaggerated gloom, more than the normal and even healthy sadness of heathen men. It is part of the same sort of secret pessimism that loves to make primitive man a crawling creature, whose body is filth and whose soul is fear. It comes, of course, from the fact that men are moved most by their religion, especially when it is irreligion. For them, anything primary and elemental must be evil. But it is the curious consequence that while we have been deluged with the wildest experiments in primitive romance, they have all missed the real romance of being primitive. They have described scenes that are wholly imaginary in which the men of the Stone Age are men of stone like walking statues, in which the Assyrians or Egyptians are as stiff or as painted as their own most archaic art. But none of these makers of imaginary scenes have tried to imagine what it must really have been like to see those things as fresh which we see as familiar. They have not seen a man discovering fire like a child discovering fireworks. They have not seen a man playing with the wonderful invention called the wheel, like a boy playing at putting up a wireless station. They have never put the spirit of youth into their descriptions of the youth of the world. It follows that amid all their primitive or prehistoric fancies, there are no jokes. There are not even practical jokes in connection with the practical inventions. And this is very sharply defined in the particular case of hieroglyphics. For there seems to be serious indication that the whole high human art of scripture or writing began with a joke. There are some who will learn with regret that it seems to have begun with a pun. The king or the priests or some responsible persons, wishing to send a message up the river in that inconveniently long and narrow territory, hit on the idea of sending it in picture writing, like that of the Red Indian. Like most people who have written picture writing for fun, he found the words did not always fit. But when the word for taxes sounded rather like the word for pig, he boldly put down a pig as a bad pun and chanced it. So a modern hieroglyphist, 
might represent at once by unscrupulously drawing a hat followed by a series of upright numerals. It was good enough for the pharaohs, and ought to be good enough for him. But it must have been great fun to write, or even to read, these messages, when writing and reading were really a new thing. And if people must write romances about ancient Egypt, and it seems that neither prayers, nor tears, nor curses can withhold them from the habit, I suggest that scenes like this would really remind us that the ancient Egyptians were human beings. I suggest that somebody should describe the scene of the great monarch sitting among his priests, and all of them roaring with laughter and bubbling over with suggestions as the royal puns grew more and more wild and indefensible. There might be another scene of almost equal excitement about the decoding of this cipher, the guesses and clues and discoveries having all the popular thrill of a detective story. That is how primitive romance and primitive history really ought to be written. For whatever was the quality of the religious or moral life of remote times, and it was probably much more human than is conventionally supposed, the scientific interest of such a time must have been intense. Words must have been more wonderful than wireless telegraphy, and experiments with common things a series of electric shocks. We are still waiting for somebody to write a lively story of primitive life. The point is in some sense a parenthesis here, but it is connected with the general matter of political development by the institution which was most active in these first and most fascinating of all the fairy tales of science. It is admitted that we owe most of this science to the priests. Modern writers like Mr. Wells cannot be accused of any weakness of sympathy with a pontifical hierarchy, but they agree at least in recognizing what pagan priesthoods did for the arts and sciences. Among the more ignorant of the enlightened there was indeed a convention of saying that priests had obstructed progress in all ages, and a politician once told me in a debate that I was resisting modern reforms exactly as some ancient priest probably resisted the discovery of wheels. I pointed out, in reply, that it was far more likely that the ancient priest made the discovery of the wheels. It is overwhelmingly probable that the ancient priest had a great deal to do with the discovery of the art of writing. It is obvious enough in the fact that the very word hieroglyphic is akin to the word hierarchy. The religion of these priests was apparently a more or less tangled polytheism, of a type that is more particularly described elsewhere. It passed through a period when it cooperated with the king, another period when it was temporarily destroyed by the king, who happened to be a prince with a private theism of his own, and a third period when it practically destroyed the king and ruled in his stead. But the world has to thank it for many things which it considers common and necessary and the creators of those common things ought really to have a place among the heroes of humanity. If we were at rest in a real paganism, instead of being restless in a rather irrational reaction from Christianity, we might pay some sort of pagan honor to these nameless makers of mankind. We might have veiled statues of the man who first found fire, or the man who first made a boat, or the man who first tamed a horse. And if we brought them garlands or sacrifices, there would be more sense in it than in disfiguring our cities with cockney statues of stale politicians and philanthropists. 
But one of the strange marks of the strength of Christianity is that, since it came, no pagan in our civilization has been able to be really human. The point is here, however, that the Egyptian government, whether pontifical or royal, found it more and more necessary to establish communication, and there always went with communication a certain element of coercion. It is not necessarily an indefensible thing that the state grew more despotic as it grew more civilized. It is arguable that it had to grow more despotic in order to grow more civilized. That is the argument for autocracy in every age. And the interest lies in seeing it illustrated in the earliest age. But it is emphatically not true that it was most despotic in the earliest age and grew more liberal in a later age. The practical process of history is exactly the reverse. It is not true that the tribe began in the extreme of terror of the old man and his seat and spear. It is probable, at least in Egypt, that the old man was rather a new man, armed to attack new conditions. His spear grew longer and longer, and his throne rose higher and higher as Egypt rose into a complex and complete civilization. That is what I mean by saying that the history of the Egyptian territory is, in this, the history of the earth, and directly denies the vulgar assumption that terrorism can only come at the beginning and cannot come at the end. We do not know what was the very first condition of the more or less feudal amalgam of landowners, peasants and slaves, in the little commonwealths beside the Nile, but it may have been a peasantry of an even more popular sort. What we do know is that it was by experience and education that little commonwealths lose their liberty. That absolute sovereignty is something not merely ancient, but rather relatively modern. And it is at the end of the path called progress that men return to the king. Egypt exhibits, in that brief record of its remotest beginnings, the primary problem of liberty and civilization. It is the fact that men actually lose variety by complexity. We have not solved the problem properly any more than they did, but it vulgarizes the human dignity of the problem itself to suggest that even tyranny has no motive save in tribal terror. And just as the Egyptian example refutes the fallacy about despotism and civilization, so does the Babylonian example refute the fallacy about civilization and barbarism. Babylon also we first hear of when it is already civilized, for the simple reason that we cannot hear of anything until it is educated enough to talk. It talks to us in what is called cuneiform, that strange and stiff triangular symbolism that contrasts with the picturesque alphabet of Egypt. However relatively rigid Egyptian art may be, there is always something different from the Babylonian spirit which was too rigid to have any art. There is always a living grace in the lines of the lotus, and something of rapidity, as well as rigidity, in the movement of the arrows and the birds. Perhaps there is something of the restrained but living curve of the river, which makes us, in talking of the serpent of old Nile, almost think of the Nile as a serpent. Babylon was a civilization of diagrams, rather than of drawings. Mr. W. B. Yeats, who has a historical imagination to match his mythological imagination, and indeed the former is impossible without the latter, 
wrote truly of the men who watched the stars from their pedantic Babylon. The cuneiform was cut upon bricks, of which all their architecture was built up. The bricks were of baked mud, and perhaps the material had something in it forbidding the sense of form to develop in sculpture or relief. Theirs was a static, but a scientific civilization, far advanced in the machinery of life, and, in some ways, highly modern. It is said that they had much of the modern cult of the higher spinsterhood, and recognized an official class of independent, working women. There is perhaps something in that mighty stronghold of hardened mud that suggests the utilitarian activity of a huge hive. But though it was huge, it was human. We see many of the same social problems as in ancient Egypt or modern England. And whatever its evils, this also was one of the earliest masterpieces of man. It stood, of course, in the triangle formed by the almost legendary rivers of Tigris and Euphrates, and the vast agriculture of its empire, on which its towns depended, was perfected by a highly scientific system of canals. It had, by tradition, a high intellectual life, though rather philosophic than artistic. And there preside over its primal foundation those figures who have come to stand for the stargazing wisdom of antiquity, the teachers of Abraham, the Chaldees. Against this solid society, as against some vast bare wall of brick, there surged age after age the nameless armies of the nomads. They came out of the deserts, where the nomadic life had been lived from the beginning, and where it is still lived today. It is needless to dwell on the nature of that life. It was obvious enough, and even easy enough to follow a herd or a flock which generally found its own grazing ground, and to live on the milk or meat it provided. Nor is there any reason to doubt that this habit of life could give almost every human thing, except a home. Many such shepherds or herdsmen may have talked in the earliest time of all the truths and enigmas of the book of Job, and of these were Abraham and his children, who have given to the modern world for an endless enigma the almost monomaniac monotheism of the Jews. But they were a wild people, without comprehension of complex social organization, and a spirit like the wind within them made them wage war on it again and again. The history of Babylonia is largely the history of its defense against the desert hordes, who came on at intervals of a century or two, and generally retreated as they came. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>